Hello and welcome to Minor Books, a podcast where we talk about forgotten authors, books from the backlist, and works in translation. I'm Nikhil Krishnan. And I'm Raf Cormack. Hello. In today's episode, we'll be talking about two books which take us to the borderlands between Europe and Asia in the early decades of the 20th century. The first of them is a novel by someone who called themselves Kurban Said, and we're going to come back to why that is a question in a moment. Uh, this is a book called Ali und Nino in the original German, published in 1937 and published in English translation in an edition uh, in 1970. The translation was done by Yenia Grayman. The second book, uh, Raf, I think you can tell us about that one. The second one is Tom Rice's The Orientalist in Search of a Man caught between East and West. I proposed this as a kind of rebuff to Ali und Nino, because this tells the story of who Kurban Said is, a kind of literary mystery solving that pretty thorny issue. So let's uh, start by talking briefly about uh, Ali and Nino. So Ali and Nino was described by many of its earliest champions as a sort of Caucasian Romeo and Juliet. It's a tale of um, star-crossed lovers. Ali, of the title, is uh, a Muslim boy in his late teens. The Nino, of the title, is a girl, a Christian girl, in her mid to late teens. They live in the city of Baku in the early 20th century. They fall in love. Uh, Their relationship goes through all sorts of challenges, of which the fact that they come from two different religions is actually a smaller deal than you'd think. And then a great many other things start to get in the way. First, the beginning of the First World War, and shortly afterwards, the Russian Revolution. And Baku, being in the country now called Azerbaijan, is at the very edges of what uh, was then the, the Russian Empire and would subsequently become the Soviet Empire. And that means we have this colourful account of a booming city, a city into which huge amounts of money have appeared because of the oil industry and a city with a a complex history of multicultural coexistence. So it's a pretty thrilling book. It's loads of fun. The love story, I think, works as pure romance, both with a small R and a capital R. Just the sheer fluency of the writing and the apparent conviction that the author has in his characters, I think, sort of takes you over some of the the dodgier bits, some of which we'll be discussing uh, in just a moment. Anyway, so I really, really enjoy it. Uh, Plenty of things to be ambivalent about, but plenty of things to take pleasure in as well. Uh, Raf, what did you think of it? Yep, so I just read this for the podcast. Hadn't read it before, although knew about it because of The Orientalist. And I was a little bit apprehensive, but there is enough to like in it to carry you through. I mean, yeah, you said colourful, thrilling, it's swashbuckling. You might also say the writing style is kind of fun. It's full of this romanticism for a kind of Caucasian past. The Actually, the writer manages to put across pretty well and in an exciting, at least, way. I wouldn't necessarily say the romance succeeds as a small R romance, Though I think it probably does succeed as a large R romance in the, you know, there's a there's enough of a sort of genre to be getting along with and you can fit it in well enough to a sort of ancient romantic frame. But I don't know really whether the character of Nino, who is the, the woman, you ever figure out quite why she's so in love with Ali or nor really necessarily why Ali is, is quite so in love with her. A lot of a lot of what pulls you through this book actually is the kind of verve of the prose. And this translator, would you like to say a little bit about her? You may know more about her than than I do, but uh, this was a woman called uh, I think we're going to pronounce her name Yenia Grayman. Uh, but that was not her Let's birth name. I believe she was Alnuth Gitterman and born, if I'm right, in Odessa. Was it? I think Odessa. Yes. She lived in Germany. Worked as a dancer in Germany. Most of actually uh, the knowledge. I'm getting from either comes from the Orientalist, the book, or from a, a recent auction lot of her personal archive that was put up. She was in Germany 30s and 40s around the same time uh, that one of the possible authors of this book was there, uh, though doesn't seem to have met him, and then moved to England in the 50s and got obsessed with, it seems, this author. Uh, so she translated this book, Ali and Nino, and one other of his books, though she didn't ever translate 
anything else. Didn't really work as a writer. She worked more as an illustrator and an artist, but saw something in this book that made her want to publish it. And it's sort of maybe largely due to her, actually, as well as the Orientalist, Tom Tom Rice's book, that this novel is so well known. And we should maybe also say that in the 1990s, the post-Soviet era in Azerbaijan, this novel appears to have been taken up as a kind of national novel of Azerbaijan. In certain circles, this is a sort of strange, unusual relic of the past. But, uh, at least according to Tom Rice, if you go to Azerbaijan, this novel is seen as the great national novels. That's right. So just going back to what you said uh, a moment ago about capital and small r romance, I probably would concede the point that it does work better as capital R romance. And possibly one reason for that is that the whole book can be seen as a kind of allegory. Uh, And that might itself help to explain why Ali and Nino don't quite work as characters in the way that you'd expect from a certain kind of psychologically realistic romance. It really isn't that. They are somewhere on the borderline between realistic novel and and myth, something um, that belongs more to that earlier world of medieval romances. Of So perhaps the, that brings us to that first paragraph, which brings out very clearly the way in which the novel pitches itself. And this would be, I suppose, one ground for seeing the whole thing as a piece of allegory, uh, and which might maybe to some degree excuse some of our narrative complaints uh, about the relative superficiality of characterization. So here's how it goes. I'm going to read the first two-ish paragraphs. We were a very mixed lot, we 40 schoolboys, who were having a geography lesson one hot afternoon in the imperial Russian humanistic high school of Baku, Transcaucasia. 30 Mohammedans, 4 Armenians, 2 Poles, 3 sectarians, and 1 Russian. So far, we had not given much thought to the extraordinary geographical position of our town, but now Professor Sanin was telling us in his flat and uninspired way, the natural borders of Europe consist in the north of the North Polar Sea, in the west of the Atlantic Ocean, and in the south of the Mediterranean. The eastern border of Europe goes through the Russian Empire, along the Ural Mountains, through the Caspian Sea, and through Transcaucasia. Some scholars look on the area south of the Caucasian mountains as belonging to Asia, while others, in view of Transcaucasia's cultural evolution, believe that this country should be considered part of Europe. It can therefore be said, my children, that it is partly your responsibility as to whether our town should belong to progressive Europe or to reactionary Asia. I should add that we're not supposed to be sympathetic with that schoolmaster. He is kind of the villain of the piece in a way. Yes, so uh, if you read the piece without irony, then you'd kind of think that this is very much meant to be a kind of pro-Europe kind of introduction, but it becomes pretty clear uh, in the next few paragraphs that certainly the narrator of the book, who is the Ali of the title, uh, is not very sympathetic to it. It makes me think there is a lot of this book which is kind of in the boy's own tradition. It's a little bit starts off in a school, sort of Tom Brown's school daisy, and then later becomes this swashbuckling kind of epic of schoolboy ideas of heroism. Yeah, uh, and so I suppose one the, the, the that... useful question is how far the author actually treats that with irony, with the, the irony it evidently deserves. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's full of this idea, the romanticization of ancient chivalry. He's constantly going on about blood feuds. Kidnapping women is another major theme that comes up in it. And one thing I suppose which we should get to now then, the main question that we want to ask is, well, who wrote this book? That's the main question that the Orientalist, the Tom Rice book, wants to ask. And the reason it's so important is this question of, okay, what is the standpoint of the novelist towards what he's talking about, this kind of romanticization of patriarchal, old-fashioned values. And and there are two main candidates for who wrote the book. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear, uh, actually, that one of them is, is the definite candidate, but it's important to look at both of them, see why this is a question. So candidate number one, uh, which is who Tom Rice uh, believes it is, is this man who was born, Lev Nussenbaum, 
born actually in probably in Baku in 1905. Then when the Soviets come in, he flees the country first, uh, sort of traveling around via Istanbul, then Paris. Then he settles in Berlin. And in Berlin, Lev Nussenbaum takes on this Eastern persona, who he calls Esad Bey, uh, and writes a, a, a long series of these kind of fantasy, sort of supposedly autobiographical, but extremely heavily embellished and probably largely made up uh, books. Then after uh, it becomes clear that life for a Jew in Germany is not going to be, you know, is not possible, he moves then to Vienna and has to flee Vienna uh, and moves to Italy. But while he's in Vienna, it's where he writes this book, taking on the name Kurban Said, because the name Esad Bey uh, has been banned from publication in Germany, is on the list, you know, the black list. So he needs to take on this new name, and then he writes the book. So that's candidate number one. Candidate number two, proposed by some people in Azerbaijan, is this man called Yusuf Vazir. I don't believe he ever claimed to have written the book though some of his children claim that he did write the book. There seems to be sort of very little solid evidence for him ever writing it. And and there was one issue of uh, one Azerbaijani journal which kind of put the case full of pretty weak arguments, both against Lev Nussenbaum having written it and for Yusuf Vazir having written it. They actually eventually come to the conclusion, oh, that it must be because there are some parts of it that could only have been written by Lev Nussenbaum that in fact Lev got a manuscript that was written by Yusuf Azir and then kind of embellished it and published it. But the original version of the story is by this guy, Yusuf Azir. Now the question is why are people quite so committed then to pushing this pretty weak case for someone else having written it? And and the answer seems pretty obvious. I mean, the answer that uh, Tom Rice kind of proposes is that there are certain people who couldn't uh, imagine, and this is he quotes saying, that their national novel uh, was written by a Jew, which I think is probably pushing it a little bit too far. But still, there is this idea that this national novel of Azerbaijan has to have been written by someone steeped in this culture in order for it to make any sense. Otherwise, it's a kind of, it is a, a boy's own schoolboy fantasy romance of an Azerbaijan that probably never existed. So that's that's not really something that one wants to hear about one's national novel. So I suppose from our point of view, I mean, you and I aren't particularly invested in Azerbaijani national identity, uh, but it does matter to us as readers or coming out, uh, coming at this question outside of any question of national pride, uh, just what are we to make of it as a literary work? And so it's just the same question crops up then for us. It's perfectly satisfying book when taken as that sort of fairly rudimentary schoolboy romance. But it may turn out that it has depth, um, depending on uh, what kind of irony the author has in relation to the narrative voice of the the character of Ali. Even if it is Nussenbaum, it doesn't follow that it, it automatically becomes a sort of more sophisticated literary work, in part because Nussenbaum himself is, as I think um, Rice's book brings out very clearly, a, a sort of fantasist in various senses of the word. It may have been that he was to some degree delusional, to some degree he may just have been a manipulator. But what does it do to uh, the way in which we read the book? Well, perhaps it would be a good idea to look at a couple of the passages where it's pretty essential to know just how ironic, if at all, these uh, passages are. Um, And perhaps the ones that are most uncomfortable in this respect um, are the ones you could quite fairly accuse of uh, sexism. Yeah, so I mean, the whole the whole thing is is full of that kind of thing. But I, I picked out one passage which kind mm. of combines both the sexism that is constantly in the mm. book uh, and this boy's own heroic sort of undertone that's also going on. And it's a passage of Ali's father sort of giving him some advice. Yeah, and he says here I'll quote it: "Generally speaking." It is not a good thing to love a woman. One loves one's homeland or war. Some men love beautiful carpets or rare weapons. 
the man must look after a woman, but it's for her to love him. And there's another one in the same sort of vein, also in the mouth of uh, Ali's father. A woman is a fragile vessel. That is important to know. Do not beat her when she is pregnant. But never forget, you are the master and she lives in your shadow. Do not be unfaithful. Your wife has the right to every drop of your sperm. Eternal damnation awaits the adulterer. And more and more in that kind of, of vein. Now, you could read that as being kind of like Polonius's speech in Hamlet, right? It has the same kind of slightly sententious quality. And of course, in the Polonius case, I think it's fairly safe to say there's some authorial irony going on there. But the question is just to what degree within the frame of the novel, I mean, how sceptical is Ali in relation to some of these bits of advice? We'd like him to be, a little, you know, stand up and say, no, I should not beat my wife, even when she's not pregnant. But uh, he doesn't say that. Um, but at all the various points at which he has to decide how he's going to treat Nino, it seems like he treats her honorably. But he sort of feels in all these moments that he's he's, he's not doing it right. He's not being manly enough. So I uh, I honestly don't know how much that's meant to be, uh, how much that's there by design. But there's, one feels a certain sympathy for um, for Ali. He's, he's just sort of manages to do the right thing by Nino at various points. There's a, there's a section of the book where they go to Persia, and that's kind of painted by the narrator and by Ali as this oriental paradise. All the great sort of points about the East are encapsulated in this Persia full of wonderful gardens and fruits that sort of hang off the trees and everyone's having a great time. But also what he sees as a sort of oriental, quote-unquote, way to treat women is in effect. So the women are all in the harem and they're not really... Nino, who goes with them, is not really allowed to do anything. And she complains a little bit about this to Ali and he takes her back toward to Baku. So there's a sense that when he is faced with the choice of living in this fantasized orientalist paradise, but one which his Christian wife doesn't appreciate, he bends to the will of his new Christian wife and decides to go back to the more Europeanized Baku. And it is kind of all put in these very broad brush allegorical terms about the East and the West and everything. Nino herself at various points feels the pressure of... You know, wanting to be the right sort of wife for a Muslim husband. And she does try every now and then. She's just not very good at it. There is, again, on the question of who wrote it, which I think this whole book, mm. your interpretation of the whole book, hangs on who you think wrote it. And although it seems very crude to bring in biographical details, it's sometimes extremely hard not to, especially when this book... Uh, so published in 1937, is published shortly after Lev's wife, Lev Nussenbaum's wife, has left him for another man. He's been cuckolded. And you see in this book, if you read it that way, this tension both between his sort of desire to punish his wife, basically, which is maybe where all of these long misogynistic speeches come from, but also a desire for his wife to want to get back with him. So that's one sort of major set piece in the book where Nino is kidnapped by an Armenian and taken away. And it is uh, basically said in the book that she is unfaithful. And at one point she sort of says, yes, I was unfaithful and willingly so. But she then asks for contrition and takes him back. And it's hard not to see in that moment this kind of wish fulfillment. In fact, it's hard not to see in the entire book long series of wish fulfillment on the part of Lev Nussenbaum, Assad Bey, Kurban Saeed. The whole book seems to be about the desire to, you know, fight in these battles, to participate in blood feuds, to have a faithful wife, which he didn't. And it might also indicate a kind of Jewish anxiety. The traditional stereotypes of the Jew are the urban, the middle class, the mercantile. And if you have fantasies of being something else, it seems like you can't be that kind of swashbuckling warrior and be a Jew at once. Those are just not the inherited myths. Well, one thing he does, of course, is convert, if this assuming it is Nussenbaum, he actually converts to Islam, takes on a kind of attitude of romance, uh, fantasizing towards uh, the Islamic tradition that I suppose many Muslims wouldn't take themselves. Well, and as 
Rice points out in his book in other works by Esad Bey, Lev Nussbaum, he is also obsessed with this idea of the mountain Jew, which yes. is, uh, in his explanation of it, this idea that there are Jewish tribes who live in the Caucasus Mountains who are perhaps holdovers from the Babylonian exile. No one, yeah. there, there's lots of anthropological ink spilt over these tribes in the 19th and 20th century. No one quite figures out who they are. But they encapsulate a kind of Jewishness that would allow Lev to fulfill these fantasies of ancient honor codes and riding on horses through the mountains, this kind of thing. And for that reason, he's kind of obsessed with writing about them, constantly brings them up. Yes, perhaps this is a moment for another couple of quotations. So this one is um, in the voice of Ali, and he's discussing with. Um, another character, the institution of, of the blood feud. It's important here, I think, even on the, the least charitable reading of the irony of this book, I think we have to see this as something that's clearly in the voice of uh, the 18, 19-year-old Ali, you know, just barely out of, of school. Um, and the question I suppose we're going to raise afterwards is to what extent Levinus and Baum, assuming he's the author, shares some of uh, the attitudes that Ali expresses here. The blood feud, says Ali, is the most important basis of state order and good conduct, no matter what the Europeans say. To be sure, it is good to forgive the shedding of blood if old and wise men beg for it, beg for it from their hearts. Then a high price may be asked and forgiveness attained. But the principle of blood feuds must be maintained. Otherwise, how would it all end? Humanity is divided into families, not into nations, and the families hold between them a certain balance, God-given, and founded on the virility of the men. If this balance is disturbed by a murderous force, then the family which is offended against God's will has to lose a member too. Thus, the balance is restored. Of course, the execution of a blood feud can sometimes be a bit awkward, shots missed, or more people killed than necessary. Then the blood feud would go on. But the principle is good and clear. So, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think uh, this is Nussenbaum's own voice? Do you think he believes this stuff? Well, it raises this issue uh, that hangs as well, one of the other main issues that hangs over the book, which is this idea of Orientalism, as yep. Rice's book is called The Orientalist. And, you know, put very simply, Orientalism, a term based on Edward Said's book, basically Said. being the other Said, yes. With Edward Said, as I'm sure many people know, extremely influential book, basically arguing that the whole conception of the East in Western academic literature, as well as popular literature sort of all over Western culture, is a fantasy based on the idea that this East is a foreign, other, different to the West, perhaps more backwards than the West, or having totally different values. And this whole system of knowledge is constructed by which anyone then traveling to the so-called East couldn't see it in any other fashion except through these ancient books. Then Said goes on to say that this forms the basis of a lot of European imperialism in the 19th and 20th century. It's kind of the intellectual underpinning of all of that. And what seems to be going on, at least by certainly one interpretation of this book, is that Lev, in a kind of Don Quixote-esque way, mm. has ingested all of these uh, writings about the East, you know, German, Russian, whatever it might be, and now can only see Azerbaijan through this lens. Yeah, I suppose one thing... Uh, um that brings us back to the question of his Jewishness, is that as the, the particular sort of educated um, middle-upper-middle-class Jew that he is, um, the question of does he belong to East or West, I think, is especially salient for him in a way it may not be for people for whom that question is more or less settled. So if you think that Christianity is of the West and Islam is of the East, then it's a genuine question where uh, the Jew belongs. And as someone who's you know taught in a uh, in a in a Russian school, uh, someone who clearly is fluent in several European languages, uh, 
the obvious thing would be for him to throw in his lot with the Christian slash European side of the equation, um, and so which is why it's in some ways interesting that he decides to make the opposite choice. Yeah, it's it's very hard to get away from Lev's Jewishness. I mean, throughout his entire life, he's uh, obviously it it dictates a lot of the course of his life, ending up in Germany. Though he sort of tries to at least publicly flee this identity, he he never can. He is chased out of Germany. He is then chased out of Vienna, and bizarrely decides to take refuge in fascist. Italy, even though he he could have gone to America, if you follow Rice, there is a tradition that Rice wants to put him in, I'm not sure I'd necessarily agree, of the, the Jewish Orientalist. And he dedicates a quite good chapter, I think, in the book to that whole concept where the question of, uh, of what is East and what is West is, is never entirely clear if you're Jewish. I'm not sure how much it really kind of works in 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 the case of Lev. Just yeah, because... so, I mean, one way of, of of maybe getting at this question is it's he's not unique, and perhaps um, Jewish people aren't unique in having had to make this choice. I mean, it's a question that appears in um, parts of the world that are in one or other way liminal on the boundaries. Uh, and I suppose Baku geographically is kind of almost emblematic of, of that choice. Um, another place which has that, I suppose, is Constantinople stroke Istanbul, another place which is sort of perched on this space between uh, cultures, civilizations, continents. Um, but then it's a choice that people have had to make in their own lives. So, I mean, we're talking about the period of history when, say, if... Um, 1913 is the year that the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore wins the Nobel Prize. And he travels around Europe on these lecture tours, and um, he's treated very much as a figure of Oriental wisdom. And to some degree, um, I mean, critics then and subsequently of Tagore have said that he kind of played up to that, you know, his long beard, the big flowing robes, the tendency to talk in vague resonant terms about the infinite and so forth. But then you look at some of the works and some of the lectures he's giving are pretty modern in every sense of the word condemnations of both European and Japanese nationalism. Uh, and there's no resonant vague uh, mysticism there. So it seems like um, there are people who sometimes play up to stereotypes, and then you look at some of the reality of their work, and there seems to be more going on there than you think, than you'd ex- expect if all you knew was was the cliche. Um, I had another thing to say, which is, I mean, this is um, a little quotation from the beginning of chapter two of, of Ali and Nino. And it might be worth kind of maybe just thinking about how much irony there is here, how much awareness of some of the questions we're raising about it, you might get just from looking at the the text itself. So this is a description, again, in in Ali's voice of a meal he's having with his family. Uh, And one thing might be useful to look, look out for is both the presence there of what you might call Orientalist tropes of the East, of the Asiatic, and so forth, and also of various points of some kind of self-awareness in relation to them. So here's how it goes. On the flat roof, soft, many-coloured, grotesquely barbarian patterned rugs were spread out, and we sat on them, cross-legged, sheltered from the wind. My father, my uncle, and I. Servants stood behind us, holding lanterns. Before us, on the carpet, a whole collection of oriental delicacies tempted us, Honey cakes, candied fruit, shish kebab, and rice with chicken and currants. I admired my father's and my uncle's elegance, as I often had before. Without moving their left hands at all, they tore off large pieces of black bread, formed them into cones, and lifted them to the mouth. With exemplary grace, my uncle put two fingers and the thumb of his right hand into the greasy, steaming rice, took some of it, squeezed it into a ball, and put this into his mouth without losing a single grain. Why are the Russians so conceited about their art of eating with knife and fork? Even the most stupid person can learn this within a month. I eat quite easily with knife and fork and know how to behave at a European table. But even though I'm already 18, I cannot eat the many courses of Oriental dishes with complete aristocratic grace, as my father and my uncle do, using only two fingers and the thumb of the right hand, and not drop a morsel, not even into the palms of their hands. Nino says our way of eating is barbaric. In the Kipiani's house, they always eat at table, the European way. 
In my home, we do this only when we have Russian guests, and Nino is horrified at the thought of my sitting on the floor, eating with my hand. She forgets that her own father was already 20 years old when he took his first fork into his hand. There's a longish quotation, but I think it's um, worth sort of playing around with some of it. The word, or cognates of the word barbaric, appear there twice. Um, and that last line, I think, very nicely undermines a lot of what's come out before here. The idea that there's these two kind of natural categories of East and West with their own civilizational norms. Uh, it turns out that the Georgian Christian, um, in many ways, their adoption of European eating practices is fairly recent. And this is something that it's the kind of thing you can imagine a certain kind of you know debunking cultural historian pointing out. But Ali's sort of already yeah. within the framework of the book aware of this fact himself. Do you think he's a sort of Saidin of a different sort already, perhaps in Kuwaitly? I mean, I I also noted that point where the Georgian father had only uh, learned to eat with knife and fork at the age of 20 and, and thought basically exactly the same as you. But I, I think that people misread Saeed Edwardesses a lot mm. and sort of think that because people like the East, in quote-unquote, that means... Yeah. Oh well, we've debunked Said because Said thought that the West were full of these people who just hate the East and think it's disgusting and would never be seen dead in it. But actually, that's not really what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that all these people, most of them, claimed to really respect the East, and many of them claimed to think the East was better than the West, but they still had these views about it which were not really based in any kind of reality but were more based in the reading that they'd done and the cultural assumptions that they already came with and i think maybe i wouldn't want to say oh because lev kurban saeed asad bey thinks that actually eating with your fingers is better than eating with a knife and fork which it may or may not be that means he's not an Orientalist. I know that's not what you were saying. You were saying it, has a, it was slightly more complex. Yeah, category. yeah, that's probably fair. I suppose the thought is more: does the text have within it the kind of critique of the resources to I don't know, mount a critique of its own assumptions? And every now and then, it seems like characters show a level of uh, kind of of awareness or something at the edge of their conscious awareness, which you can sort of take forward into the kind of more fully blown, more systematic critique that the. Uh, that Edward Said then makes famous. There certainly are certain points in the text where that is true. They're quite few and far between. I mean, that is the big question of this yeah. text. How much can we read it against the apparent grain? How much? Yeah, and I suppose what counts as an apparent grain is one that we can't really answer without knowing something about its its author, uh, and it's quite distinctive there. Right? There are a lot of books where you kind of want to say, surely it shouldn't matter who has written it, and it should be able to, it should be possible to talk about it just as, as text. But here it's really hard to know what the text is doing, unless you have some sense of where the author might be coming from, what he's trying to do with it. And it makes, it's very uncomfortable in that way, because I've always been taught and would teach that the text is the primary thing. And certainly, if we consider something other than the text, it's not the biography of the author. Yeah. That's very kind of level one criticism. Yeah. Yes, and hopefully I come but... from this other tradition of, of uh, aesthetics where we've never believed that the intentional fallacy, so-called, is a fallacy at all. On the contrary, we kind of think that what a text is is partly an action and you can't really characterize an action without bringing in some notion of agency and you can't bring in agency without bringing in an agent and then you're kind of back in the province of exactly the sort of biographical criticism that you're not supposed to do. Yeah, but maybe biographical criticism is coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're trying to bring it back here. Um, so do you think this is the moment, yeah. I think, to transition back into talking about Tom Rice? We, we've mentioned quite a bit about his book. Maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit more about the book uh, as a, a book, uh, not just uh, in terms of what it tells us about uh, the author of Ali and Nino, but what it's trying to do as a larger project. I'm really interested by this book, partly because I'm really interested by this kind of book, which is to say, perhaps we'll call it a literary mystery, uh, 
So the question of who is Koban Saeed obviously dominates the book. Actually, it's the question is solved in the introduction. So he, he starts from the beginning saying, I found out who Koban Saeed is. Actually, it's based on a New Yorker article too from, from 1999, from quite a number of years before it's published, also solving who this guy is. So the mystery is not a whodunit, really, but it's a how do we get there? I'm also very interested in books, partly because I'm sort of trying to write one about people in this period, particularly, but it doesn't have to be this period of the 20s and 30s, who create these personas for themselves. And I feel that the 20s and 30s is a time which is particularly rich in people like that, often who create these kind of Eastern personas around themselves too. So one example, actually, who, I'd, who I'll talk about just a little bit now, an unsolved literary mystery, who maybe if I could solve it, I could write the book about him, but I'm not sure, is a guy <laughs> called Ahmed Abdullah, who turns up in the United States, in New York, in the 1910s, and works between LA and New York to a lot of the 1910s and 1920s, writing mostly this kind of Orientalist books that Assad Bey, Kurban Saeed, Lev Nussenbaum wrote. Probably he's most famous for writing the screenplay of the Douglas Fairbanks film, The Thief of Baghdad, uh, and then the subsequent novelization, a uh, Orientalist Arabian Nights type fantasy. But he had a very similar persona, and I'm just going to read the introduction to one of his short stories, which details a little bit about this persona. So Sheikh, he calls himself Sheikh uh, for no apparent reason. Sheikh Ahmed Abdullah is of mixed Arab and Tatar ancestry. His father's family is the tribe of the Quraysh of Mecca and Arabia, and the same clan as to which the Prophet belonged. His mother's family of the that which gave the Tatar dynasty to China and the Mughals to India. He belongs to the immediate family of the Emir of Afghanistan. So he's really ticked almost every single Eastern box you can imagine. Uh, after training, then the, uh, the biography continues. After early training in India, Ahmed Abdullah went to school in France. Then he went to Eton, took some work at Oxford, went back to Paris to the Sorbonne, and then to the Französische Gymnasium in Berlin. He has seen service in the British Army in India, China, and Africa, and he has travelled in out-of-the-way places wherever he has been. That he is the writer, writer of rare power, these stories bear witness. It's an introduction to the, the story. And he dines out on this Esad Bey-style persona for most of his career, becoming, like Lev Esad Bey, Koban Said, a pretty successful, well-selling author, extremely prolific, just like Lev. But the difference with him is that his sort of, shall we say, true identity is never found. After his death, sort of quite funnily, his his wife claims to reveal his true identity, but that is he is a descendant of the Romanov czars. So he adds yet another kind of big name historical family into his tree. No one ever manages to figure out really who he was. The one consistent thing about him is that he was born in um, Yalta. People say he, some people sort of rumor that he was Turkish, but it, it, it's never proved. And there's, I mean, there's hundreds of people who are like this around the 1920s. And one question that this book really raises for me is how you're supposed to write about them. Uh, I have a, I think Rice comes up with a number of solutions. But before I talk about them, I thought I'd ask you what your reaction to this book was after you know, reading Koban Saeed. Uh, so I'd read uh, Koban Saeed quite a while ago, nearly 15 or so years ago. I'd read Ali and Nino, and I loved it then. Uh, and that was probably before I'd read any of the other Saeed or asked any of these questions. I think I read it in pretty much the spirit of the Ali character within it. I was only a tiny bit older than, than he was then and probably full of the same sorts of, of, of romantic ideas. So reading this book, I think, uh, and realising there was so much as a question about the identity of the author, um, 
in a way, is deeply discombobulating. You've kind of go back over those early reactions and realize that nothing about the book is necessarily what you think it is. And I think the book really succeeds in doing that. Um, I mean, the other thing it does, which I think is less successful, I mean, it is a pretty long book. My hardback is more than 400 pages long. And there's a question of whether it needed to be quite so long. And perhaps that's a decision either um, of the author or one pressed upon him by his publishers that this character is, is too obscure in his own right to be worthy of a book just because it's a book about him. So it had to be a book about his life and times and therefore it becomes a a kind of, let's use his life and his psychology as a way of telling a broader story of the early 20th century of the First World War, the interwar period, Caucasian Soviet history, German history. Um, And some of that I think gets a bit overwhelming. I don't think I needed quite so long uh, a description of Hitler's rise to power, for instance. Yeah, I, I, I totally yeah, I, agree I, with that. And and there are t- sometimes as well where he seems to adopt some of Lev's, should we call them prejudices, that he seems to be very bizarrely pro-Tsar during some of his narration <laughs> of the of the Russian Revolution. I mean, you, I can see reasons uh, for not necessarily liking the Bolsheviks, but he, he really puts yep. quite a lot of... He's, he seems to argue that if everyone had just got along with the czar, things would have been all right. Yeah. It comes down to, I suppose, this question that you raise is whether a character like Lev can sustain a book. Mm. That's right. Which well, I sustain wonder... the work of nonfiction, I suppose. It's not quite the same thing. I'm sure he could sustain a work of fiction in his own right, possibly because he is, in a way, a fiction. He is a very carefully calibrated construction so uh there's no reason why a novel about him wouldn't work um as a novel uh, about this sort of character but when you're doing it as a piece of non-fiction i suppose the trouble is you need to be able to expect that your reader already has certain expectations going into the story that you're then going to overturn and i suppose the trouble is you know alienino is a moderately popular novel i think it's safe to say it's the most popular book set in azerbaijan ever written but it's still not i mean it's at best uh, uh at most, you could you could call it a cult classic, but it isn't more than that. So I can imagine pitching this to a publisher and them saying, yeah, this is all very interesting, but no one knows who this guy is. So you, you need to connect it to as many things that people already know about, hence all the long bits about czars and Bolsheviks and Lenin and uh, the German Revolution and Rosa Luxemburg and Hitler and so forth. Yeah, and but then another question that arises from that is how do you, if you're writing this book of nonfiction, it's not a fictionalized book, how do you deal with the fact that so much of the material that you have, so many of the sources are, well, number one, come from your subject, and number two, your subject is extremely unreliable and made up, fantasized, whichever word you want to use a lot of the details of his life. And there sort of seems to me to be two reactions to that problem. The Mm -hmm. first, which is the one that I would always be tempted into, though you run the risk of being extremely boring, is Mm -hmm. to, okay, to try and test some of these statements that Lev makes against historical fact, if we want to call it that. You know, to say, let's try and trace Lev's journey from, let's say, Baku to Istanbul. Let's look at what he said, and let's look at what any of this is believable. But that risks turning into, A, a book that's very boring, because you're constantly interrupting the flow of the narrative to say that probably didn't actually happen. And B, ends up being a task which is sort of impossible to do because so many of these incidents would only ever have been recorded in in Lev's imagination, in his writings. I picked out one Mm. incident, which I think Bill demonstrates this, which is the story of the Baron von Ostensacken, who Lev meets in a town called Kizil Su, which is now Turkmenbashi. And I'll read from... Rice's account. Uh, He says, Lev spent much of his time chatting with the sole European in the city, 
an old German named Baron von Ostensacken, who had spent the past, the past 30 years of his retirement along with his German wife in Gesilsu. Since he did not associate with, quote, coloured people of any kind, a group that included the entire local population, the Baron seldom left the house. He was very happy to talk to this young refugee from Baku. Indeed, Lev would have said that these were some of the earliest discussions about Germany. They rarely spoke about the present situation, Turkestan or Muslim Russia at all. The Baron wanted to chat only about his fatherland, though, like many of the most adamant German nationalists, he had not been born there himself. So a great, nice little vignette of Lev coming across a sort of eccentric uh, German-Russian Baron as he flees Baku on his way to Istanbul. But it seems pretty clear, if you kind of do any reading around it, that this event never happened. The Baron von Ostensacken, uh, of which there were many, but there don't appear to be any who spent 30 years of retirement in Turkmenbashi. It seems most likely that Lev is basing this on a Baron Fyodor von Ostensacken, who was a sort of sometime director of the Imperial Russian Geographical Society in St. Petersburg, who wrote a little bit about travel in Kyrgyzstan, which one assumes Lev had read about. He might even be mistaking a village in Kyrgyzstan called Kizilsu with this Turkmenbashi Kizilsu place too. So the decision I suppose you have to make if you're Tom Rice is, okay, do I just stick with this fun story because it's a great story and it forms a nice paragraph? Or do I go into this slightly turgid explanation of why this story probably isn't true, even though you can't actually come to any definite conclusions either way about whether it's true or not, because it's very hard to prove a negative. To be a little bit poncy about it, this is the methodological question for both journalists and historians. Uh, You've got your sources, and sometimes you present what your sources tell you as the facts. Sometimes you call your sources themselves into question on the basis of of other sources. Um, The thing is just sometimes it's really hard to find any other sources. Sometimes it's just a lot of work. And as you've just pointed out, sometimes um, once you bring that measure of necessary scepticism and caution to your narrative, the story becomes weighed down by qualifications and and weasel words. And I'm not sure, I don't know if I have a solution to this problem. I mean, you and I have written works of nonfiction, and I assume we've faced this problem at at various points. Uh, At what points do you draw attention to the fact that this is only one of many possible versions of the story? And um, insofar as I found a solution, I think the, uh, just a word to repeat a word we've used earlier on here, it's a matter of finding just the right tone of irony, where um, you can tell the story in something like I don't know, um, a Jane Austen style, free and direct style. So you always know that it's kind of someone else's voice. It's not your voice. You're describing the world as your characters see it. But at all points, caveat lector, um, it's your job to approach these stories with caution. And the author has done his job by, I mean, the, the tone and the register, the quality of the irony is what does the job of alerting you to the possibility that none of this may be true. And you can do that, I think, without bogging down the narrative too much. I'm not sure this book quite nails it. I think it gives us enough. that Once you've read the whole book, you kind of know better than to just take it on its own terms. But just to go a couple of steps back, I mean, you were saying that there's a general question here of how one writes a book of this sort. And we first described this as a kind of literary mystery, and then as a story about someone constructing personas. Um, If I can just put it to you, if only as a provocation, I mean, could we just describe it as a story of compulsive liars? And if it's not that, then what makes it more interesting than just another story of someone compulsively lying? That is a good question. And what has to make it interesting is the persona that they are constructing for themselves. I mean, there's a, there's a few levels of, okay, lots of these kind of people existed throughout history. Not all of them are the subjects of a good book. Lev maybe is the subject of a good book. I think I think that's pretty fair to say. We, we With some caveats, we both enjoyed this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what makes him interesting 
part number one, uh, the one thing that helps uh, Tom Rice is that he appears to hurt nobody by his lies. I mean, I think you'll probably write an interesting book about someone who does hurt someone by their lies, but one thing that makes him sympathetic, and this a sympathetic main character, is the only person who he seems to be hurting is himself. And in fact, he would have lived a presumably much more pleasant life if he hadn't been so invested in this fantasy of Esad Bey, hadn't been so invested in staying in Europe, had gone to America when he could have done, uh, and not constructed this whole persona around himself. So that that certainly helps. Another thing is the the kind of not the quality of lie, but the sort of nature of the lie has to be interesting, and it needs to be all encompassing. I think so. The fact that he is so invested in creating this persona around himself, you're never quite sure who he's lying to, whether it's himself yeah. or. Uh, other people because he becomes so ingrained within the lie that it's impossible to separate the lie from the self. Uh, And I think that's also another necessary category of what makes someone interesting. Also, it's what makes him so difficult to write about in a nonfiction way because there is no way to separate the lie from the truth because the two have, at some point along the way, a point we're never really sure of, have fused. So I don't think everyone who was fraudulent in the 1920s and 30s necessarily makes for a good biographical nonfiction book, but there are certain ones who do and certain qualities. And I think Lev has these qualities, not only because uh, obviously Rice is quite invested in, in the fact that he traveled through all these very eventful points in history but because he is such a sympathetic character and because we're never sure who is hurt by his lies and who he's lying to he ends up having a tragic kind of gravitas that others don't Mm. Um, all right i think that's an excellent note on which to end Uh, so just repeat the name of the two books that was the orientalist by tom rice and ali and nino by Kurban Said, aka Lev Nussenbaum, translated by Yenia Grayman. This was the Minor Books Podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>